two-egg breakfast, now only $3.99. That's $3.99 Monday through Friday at your IHOP now. This week's working lunch is fueled by IHOP. I hop. We working with here, Renzel. Not really sure. I mean, we're talking about pancakes. We're talking about burgers. What exactly happened with this brand over the so last couple of weeks? Big news this week, all over the major papers. The company I hop. If you'll remember, some I think two months ago ish, uh, they were changing their name to I hop International House of Burgers. Turns out. This was all a gigantic marketing ploy. They were actually never changing their name. They just wanted to bring a lot of attention and focus to their new burger menu, which apparently was wildly successful. That takes some some cojones if you're in the marketing department to make that call. You better back it up with some good burgers. I mean, I'm looking at their menu right now, and they've got uh, some pretty tasty offerings on, on display here. I'm Indeed, they do. What what are you uh, what are you thinking about going with there? I'm trying to combo up the whole uh, breakfast uh, burger thing. I'm going with Flo. They got a big brunch burger, which looks like it's got hash browns, a fried eggs, and bacon, and of course your burger. This looks great. That is uh, that is a very good choice, my friend. I'm gonna kind of follow your lead. I'm gonna try to do the same thing, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna approach it a little differently. I'm gonna go with the cowboy barbecue burger. Onion rings, barbecue sauce, bacon, all the core components of a good burger. But I'm gonna do on the side, a Mexican Trace Leches pancake order. Um, oh my That's gosh. Aggressive. That's it is, aggressive. but it's going to be phenomenal. So, Mr. Renzo, I also want to say it's good to have you back on the pod. Um, you swapped out Mr. Kefoffer. Already, I'm already liking it better. Um, Mr. Kefoffer is at NCSL this week and hopefully will provide us a report and join us later. But it's just going to be the A team today, Renzo. I'm happy to be back, friend, but I think we got this thing covered. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Today on the podcast, D.C. tipped wage back in the news City Council is scheduled a hearing for September to determine whether or not to repeal the measure passed by the voters earlier this summer. And Senator Marco Rubio has finally introduced the long-awaited paid leave legislation. We'll talk about that and what it means for Republicans across the country on this volatile issue. And Starbucks. The state of California has taken a bite out of the coffee giant on an important wage and hour issue that all operators ought to be paying attention to. We'll talk about those stories and more, and we'll wrap it up with a legislative scorecard as well. Let's go to California. California, oh, California. Um, So this is a lawsuit that has been, it's one of kind of many that fall into this category that have been working its way through the California courts for a little while. Um, Essentially, an employee is saying that Starbucks has a policy that has cheated him out of wages and the policy is that at the end of the business day when closing up um, a starbucks shop the employee swipes out clocks out and that triggers the uploading of data from you know customer transactions employee hours all that sort of stuff that triggers the upload to corporate which takes a couple minutes and then the employee locks up and leaves. So what the employee has argued in this suit is that all those piled up seconds or minutes 
Um, and for this individual, over a 17-month period, it came out to basically $100 in wages. Um, so we're, we're literally talking about seconds, maybe minutes every, every day. Um, the California Supreme Court ruled that Starbucks was on the hook for all those, those extra seconds or minutes that it had not been compensating its employees for. Um, so it's a major ruling out of uh, the state Supreme Court. All employers need to be kind of paying attention to this and, and adjusting operations accordingly. Yeah, I got to think that's a pretty big deal in a large market like California. As I understand it, this is working, you know, the California Supreme Court has ruled specific to California state law, uh, but the case is still pending and moving its way through the Ninth Circuit at the federal level. So we could have some implications potentially beyond California. But for now, we're looking uh, squarely at California and folks need to make sure they're, you know, getting the appropriate legal counsel and adjusting their policies accordingly. That's right. And so what's at issue is the federal standard is <clears throat> essentially uh, allows for de minimis time. So seconds or minutes that, you know, are hard to capture that the employer is not, you know, own the hook, so to speak, for that. Um, California code does not have the same standard. This is part of what was what was at issue and the state Supreme Court um kind of address is California law does not have that same standard in place. So now under California law, employers will be responsible for this. And the uh, in the opinion, the Supreme Court noted that with technological advances, that certainly companies um, should have the capability now to be more accurate in capturing this type of information. They also noted that, you know, um, ruling for Starbucks would deny the trial bar an opportunity to litigate this and, uh, you know, make good public policy statements, which should be kind of troubling um, to employers. So the Ninth Circuit, which does have that federal FLSA de minimis standard, as you mentioned, Joe, is also looking at this. And depending on how they rule, that could affect not only California, but the rest of the Ninth Circuit, which includes some of the adjacent states. Um, so something to watch out for. Um, everyone should be paying attention to it, not only because of the courts and regulators, but this is going to really send a signal to the trial bar to, uh, to go out and headhunt. So guys, let's go up to the DC bubble where the ballot initiative to eliminate the cash wage is back in the news. Looks like a hearing's been scheduled for this coming September. Let's kick it up to Mr. Renzel Joe. I know you've been scouring the city one bar at a time, getting the pulse of the getting the pulse of the town. What's going on? You know, it's an important issue. It's all in a day's work. I'm just keeping my finger on the pulse uh, here in D.C., making sure my my friends at the uh, at the restaurants are taken care of. Anyway. We got, um, yeah, we got the D.C. Council scheduling a hearing, I think it's uh, September 17th, uh, to review the tipped wage um, initiative that passed back in June, uh, along with the primary about, I think it was about 55% of D.C. voters passed this. So, yes, it did pass, but not with a supermajority. A um, lot of talk and a lot of chatter uh, about the political ramifications potentially of the council moving in, in a direction, you know, against the will of the people, as it were. Um, you know, we've seen this in other places across the country, right, Franklin? A couple other spots. On the tipped wage issue in particular, we've seen it, you know, in Maine very recently. But 
we've, we've also seen um, local city councils and state legislatures go back and uh, overturn or uh, address or tweak initiatives on a variety of issues. And what we've seen routinely is them not really pay a penalty at the uh, at the ballot box. And I think we're going to continue to uh, to see that dynamic until someone is voted out of office as a result. And we may see that play out here in, in the month of September um, related to Initiative 77. Now, you know, we've talked about before, this is a local tipped wage issue. It's, it's notable because um, any developments in this issue space or, you know, would take note of, but this is Washington, D.C. And so a lot of political news that happens there locally is going to kind of play out uh, in the national media, uh, particularly in the print media side. And, you know, I think that's probably the case here. It certainly has been up until now. So we continue to watch this uh, for that reason. Um, and Mr. Renzel, you know, when we wrap up this pod, we'll send you back out, work in those bars and restaurants, just keeping your finger in the pulse because it's that important. I do what I can for, uh, for the firm every day. We appreciate it. And one more item out of the D.C. bubble this week. Senator Marco Rubio finally introduced his long-awaited paid leave legislation. Um, unlikely that the legislation will uh, see the light of day in terms of making its way through Congress, but it is an important uh, milestone in that a prominent national Republican has introduced legislation in the United States Senate on paid leave. You know, this is an issue that has been largely driven by the Democrats, driven by uh, left of center advocates for the labor community, and Republicans have largely been on the sidelines on this issue. And then, of course, President Trump, during the campaign trail, became the first Republican to openly call for a national policy. And here we have legislation authored by Marco Rubio in the Senate. Again, don't think it has you know, much chance of, of, of seeing passage, as we've talked about on the, the pod before. It draws off of Social Security early is the premise of the plan, which has pushback from Democrats and Republicans alike. But it is important. Now puts Republicans squarely in the middle of the conversation. It's no longer a partisan issue. And as such, being a bipartisan issue now at all levels of government and for Republicans out on the campaign trail as well, it's one where the business community by and large can't sit on the sidelines either. We will, we will now be a noticeable absentee since both political parties are at the table. And it's something that we have to, regardless of what sector of the economy, entry level, manufacturing, whatever it is, the business community needs to engage in this conversation uh, sooner rather than later. All right, we have Mr. Carson Chandler, a line partner, joining us for our Paul Revere segment. This is where we do headlines from this week that are kind of forward-looking. You can also subscribe on our website and get these in your inbox every day through Midnight Reads. So, Carson, looking back over the past week, what were the headlines and, and the stories that kind of jumped out that you know you thought were thought-provoking? That's right, yeah. The, the, the whole focus of our Midnight Reads kind of daily email is not the news, but, but different pieces that we kind of call think pieces that are forward-looking, that sort of thing. And so, uh, we're going to focus on one piece this week, and if, if anybody has about 10 or 15 minutes to read, The Economist has uh, a really interesting piece Way to on, sell it. That's right. That's if, you right. Got, if you have 15 <laughs> minutes that you don't want to get back, go to The Economist. There is a, there is a if, you're, if you're in the industry and you if you care about sugar taxes and syntax, they have a really deep dive kind of on 
the history of sin taxes, taxes on tobacco, taxes on alcohol, and then kind of the evolution of the sin tax into sugary beverages and the need to improve public health through these kind of policy vehicles. And so the the, the short version of, of this very long article is, is basically, yes, they help, but they're incredibly inefficient. They do drive public health in some cases, and they look at studies from University of North Carolina, your alma mater, and, and, and some uh, universities on, on the West Coast and basically say, yes, they do have a positive impact, but there's, there's, there's a lot of bandwidth that gets used and taken up in order, in order to get that, 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 that piece. And so uh, it's, a, it's a deep dive that also basically says, look, if you really wanted to improve public health, you'd put a tax on body mass index, but no one would ever do that. It would never be feasible. And so um, it kind of talks about um, the, 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 you know, the, the, the practical applications of these. And then it also looks at the future, uh, particularly for restaurant operators in the industry. You know, what does the future look like? What other sort of sin taxes, vice taxes, you know, might we be looking at? Um, there, you know, there are other countries and other, other jurisdictions out there kind of outside the U.S. that have looked at taxes on butter and, and foods that are, are in high fat content, that kind of stuff, and the likelihood that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, no one was talking about that, but yet here we are in other places talking about it and even talking about it in the U.S. It's certainly a conversation that's going to continue, and, and you're, you're right to point this out because that pile of evidence that will be used to justify these these tools in the future um, are going to be looked to uh, by policymakers at the state and local level as they say, hey, there's evidence that shows that these are effective. And, and I think that's the main takeaway is you, you mentioned that, you know, they pointed out some some problems with these taxes as a tool to curb, uh, you know, bad behavior or, you know, that's, that's the whole purpose here. But um, on the balance, did, did the article find that overall, you know, when you weigh the positives and negatives, these are good tools for policymakers to employ, or did they discourage the use of them? No, no, definitely uh, on the positive and encouraging side. And the other piece of the article, too, was uh, not just the, you know, driving change in public health, but it's also the the idea that it's a revenue generator Absolutely. for, for local, and Which, local governments. Which in this day and age is equally, if not more important, Absolutely. the revenue generation piece versus the kind of good public policy piece. Um, you know, cities and counties desperate, and states too, but definitely municipal level government desperate for uh, new funds, particularly as they charge into new policy areas, they have to fund that. Right. And, 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 nearly, and, it. and it talks about nearly all of the ones that have been adopted around the U.S. in terms of sugar has been described as a win-win, you know, in terms of generating revenue for the local government and discouraging so-called, you know, quote-unquote, bad behavior. All right. Good flag. Get back in there and get another donut. There we go. And now it's time for the legislative scorecard, the rundown of all the top items from this week. Mr. Renzel, first, let's start in wages, and it is ballot initiative season. I think all of our updates are related to ballot initiatives. So let's start with Arkansas. What's going on there? Yeah, not a ton of legislative activity at the ballot. We've got um, in Arkansas, the Secretary of State, we've got a petition um, for an $11 an hour minimum wage ballot initiative. And the Secretary of State's office granted a 30-day extension uh, for the folks to gather additional signatures necessary to get it on the ballot. They got to do, I think it's about 15,000 additional signatures in the next 30 days to qualify for November. Okie doke. And let's go over to Michigan where we have two items, um, that we need to talk about. First, let's talk about minimum wage and we'll talk about paid leave. What's going on with the minimum wage initiative? 
first let's hat tip to your okie doke moment. I, I really appreciated that. I think that was good. Um, in Michigan, we're, uh, we, we've got on the, on the minimum wage issue, we've got a $12 an hour minimum wage initiative up for the November ballot. They've submitted their signatures, um, and the board of canvassers was set to vote to approve those. Uh, they deadlocked in a two to two vote. Um, and so that kicks it back. Uh, and they, they did not, uh, they did not validate it for the November ballot. There is a court case pending. Um, and I think some of the board members were citing that that court case brought by the business community um, that's that's kind of pointing to some technical violations of the initiative process. I think they're going to let that pan out over the next couple of weeks and then possibly, um, depending on how that case turns out, possibly uh, revote on on the submission of on, on the certification of the signature. So everyone, I think, is watching it pretty closely over the next couple of weeks uh, and we'll see what happens, whether or not that gets on the ballot. I would note that. You know, I think it was last pod, maybe the pod before, we had Justin Winslow of the Michigan Restaurant Association known to talk about the entire process here. And, you know, if you want to know more, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But there are a lot of uh, legal hurdles that this, this initiative will have to go through before it gets in the ballot. Um, you know, and we're in a pretty short time frame for all this to happen. So um, they will be going to print with ballots, you know, late September, early October. Um, so we're, you know, next month we're going to kind of know where, where things stand. So with that, take it over to paid leave. We also have an initiative there, um, that looks like it's making its way to the Michigan ballot. Yeah. Staying in Michigan, it's, it's, you're definitely right. The board, the same board of canvassers actually certified the proposed paid leave ballot initiative, a little bit of less, um, uh, you know, issues around that. There's no legal challenge to that. Um, and so that is looking like it's going to show up on the ballot there in November. And this is um, this is uh, the initiative language would mandate that employers with more than 10 workers provide at least 72 hours of earned sick time per year uh, and 40 hours for smaller employers. So they do distinguish between large and small employers in the language. And let's hit our final development in the ballot initiative front, Missouri minimum wage initiative. What's going in there? Yeah, pretty standard there. They got a $12 an hour by 2023 uh, initiative, and uh, the signatures have been submitted several months ago, I think, and the Secretary of State's office uh, officially approved uh, that language and validated the signatures, so we will see that on the November ballot um, there in Missouri. So other than, um, you know, ballot initiative season, not a whole lot is going on in the, the legislative front. We do have some developments you know, in the administrative front, if you will. So National Labor Relations Board announced that it is going to write a rule around the Purple Communications ruling that came out under the Obama-era uh, board. This was, uh, I would say, a controversial ruling kind of at the time, um, and I suspect that the current board is going to tighten up the standard that was set forth in that in that ruling. Essentially what that ruling said is that employees can use employers' work email systems um, to conduct union organizing drives and to engage in protected concerted activity. Um, you know, in the employer in the case was arguing that, you know, they shouldn't be able to kind of use their email systems and, and IT systems to communicate, uh, and the board ruled in favor of uh, the employee and the, and the, the union. So, um Essentially, we're going to have that rewritten. 
Uh, we'll see what it looks like, but I expect it's going to be much more employer friendly. The uh, board is also moving forward on its plan to kind of streamline um, the, the, the board staff and how they function. You'll remember over the past couple months, we've had a little bit of uh, back and forth between regional board directors, um, um, kind of butting heads with the general counsel, the NLRB. Uh, the general counsel had put forward a plan that would um, bring greater accountability to the way the different regions operate, and that plan, at least a portion of it, is moving forward, so we'll continue to report on that. Final item, and we will wrap up our legislative scorecard. What's going on uh, in California, um, Renzel? We've got, it looks like we've got another head tax kind of modeled off of Seattle that poked up, but, but now maybe going away. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we saw that in Seattle, a lot of um, pushback from the business community, particularly large companies headquartered up there, Amazon, Costco, others. Um, and I think we've seen the same thing play out here in Cupertino, California, which is uh, the home of Apple. Uh, you know, small little mom and pop tech shop out of uh, out of California. There, uh, one of the biggest companies in the world, and um, they have uh, it looks like successful successfully pushed back. Uh, the city council is reporting that they're not going to institute a plan that they've been talking about earlier this year about a per employee head tax. Uh, they were looking to actually put that on the ballot initiative on on the ballot there in in the fall, uh, and they're it looks like they're pulling back plans. That doesn't mean that. Legislatively, they won't move forward, but I think they saw what happened in Seattle uh, and realized that perhaps it wasn't the best policy to um, be literally taxing employment in your uh, in your locality. Um, so we'll see if that uh, spreads anywhere else. But for now, it's not moving forward in Cupertino. And to close things out, we have a dispatch from the field. Mr. Kefoffer reporting in from NCSL. Mr. Kefoffer, how are things? So guys, as we mentioned last week on the podcast, I had the uh, opportunity to attend the National Conference of State Legislatures annual convention in Los Angeles. Uh, this week, I was pinch hitting clearly for Junket Joe Rinzel, who had a conflict. But uh, interesting uh, meeting this year, a lot of focus on revenue, a lot of focus on online sales taxes and the new economy and the impact that's going to have on revenues for the states. And conversely, a lot of conversation about sports betting and gambling and ramifications from the recent Supreme Court. And again, what that has to do with that impact on revenues into state treasuries. So it was an interesting week, a lot of talk about the economy, a lot of talk about taxation, and a lot of talk about modernization. So all of those issues don't directly affect our operators, but in a competition for disposable income, in a competition for modernizing the tax and, and regulatory structure of states going forward, big ramifications for our operators. So it was a worthwhile meeting, uh, well attended by state legislators across the country, and uh, just always good to be at those kind of policy workshops to see what's coming down the road. So who's in next week? Is Keith Offer still traveling next week, or is he out? I, I think he might be out next week. I'll another, be around. Another, another conference, huh? Yeah, I don't know what's up with that Junket Joe comment. I mean, he's like the original Junket Joe. I just inherited the title from him. I mean, he's the OG that is, Junket. I have to say that's very true. Junket Joe Keith Offer passed along the mantle to Junket Joe Renzel. It's a strong tradition. 